Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Good morning, my name is Josie Mayer. I'm a neurology registrar currently working in Perth, Western Australia. And today I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Thomas Cheminen, who's a neurologist and a stroke consultant, um, also working in Perth, Western Australia. Good morning. Good morning and thank you, Josie, for the opportunity. I think we'll have an interesting session this time, yeah. Yes, so today we're going to discuss the thalamus. So this is a very interesting structure of the brain. It contains many nuclei and is an important processor of sensory information, as well as having roles in sleep and arousal, motor control and memory. And as a result, lesions in the thalamus can cause many different presentations, so they can be quite tricky. but it's very important to learn about for neurology trainees. And so this podcast is supported with case notes, uh, which contains some useful diagrams, which are available online. So to start off with, we're going to have a discussion about you know, what the thalamus is and its functions. So Dr. Chemin, what, what is the thalamus? What does it do? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really intriguing structure, isn't it? So it's, um, it's got a kind of mystery to it, thalamus, if you look at it. And as you mentioned, it's going to be a difficult task for us to get this thing in a systematic and an organized manner in this in the short time of a podcast because it's got so much of connections and so much of unknown functions varied clinical presentations but we'll try and make um, sense out of this in the way we can so you know telomus is one of the deep-seated the gray matter nuclear structures in the brain and they're one on both sides and they lie on either side of the third ventricle and the the important boundaries of the thalamus are the internal capsule, especially the posterior limb of the internal capsule on the lateral side. And then you've got the third ventricle medially. And the important structures below, of course, is the hypothalamus and then the, the midbrain, which comes caudally. These are the important boundaries. It's a very small cluster of nuclei. If you look at the size, it's probably around three centimeters long. But even though it's a small structure, it's got a whole lot of connections. And that is why it, it the functions can be very complex. And what exactly is a function of the thalamus? You can't put it in a single word. The most important function is probably it serves as a relay nucleus. So it relays information from various parts of the body and relays it to the cortex and other parts of the brain. When we talk about thalamus, most of us, the first thing which comes to mind is, is a sensory function of thalamus. So one of the main functions is that it relays the, information, the sensory information coming from the body and relays it to the, the somatosensory cortex. In the same way, the thalamus has got complex connections with other parts of the brain, like the basal ganglia, the cerebellum, the limbic system, the frontal cortex. So it helps to modulate all these functions. So it's a kind of gateway or, or a filter in between. And because of this complexity, thalamus conditions can mimic a lot of other problems can mimic a cortical condition, it can mimic a cerebellar problem. So that is why it sometimes can be very difficult to recognize this. The way I put it is, uh, if you look at the function of thalamus, it's like somebody who sorts things in a post office, for example, you know. All the mails will come into the post office and, and you have to sort them out. It's a kind of sorting and filtering. And if something goes wrong there, you can get very wide and varied manifestation. The next thing probably we should talk about the anatomy of the thalamus. Yeah. So the anatomy of the thalamus, you know, uh, it's uh, if you look at the textbooks, you will see very complicated pictures, and um, you will see these bunches of nuclei, 
which are sometimes very difficult to make out what's going on there. So we should try and make it as simple as possible, as practical as possible. So the, if you look at the anatomy, there's, there's something called as the internal medullary laminae, which do, it's a Y-shaped structure which divides the thalamus into mainly three parts. And the between the fork of the Y, you get the anterior part of the thalamus. And then there is a medial part and then there is a lateral part. And the fourth part, that is actually the posterior most portion of the thalamus, is called the dorsal part. And the part which doesn't come in this three-part organization is there is a reticular nucleus. And then, of course, there is a midline nucleus. Okay, these are other parts which are not, which also you have to keep in mind. But the main important part is the anterior, medial, and the lateral. And the lateral part of the thalamus is again divided into the ventral and the dorsal part. But what we are mainly, we should know about is the ventral part. And when we look at the ventral part of the thalamus, there's a ventral posterior part. And that is the main area of the thalamus, which is good connection to the somatosensory cortex. Then there is a ventral anterior and the ventral lateral part, which has got connections to the basal ganglia and the cerebellum. And this lateral part is, is one of the ways by which uh, most of the manifestations happen with the, with the dysfunction of this lateral part. Then if you look at the medial part of the thalamus and the anterior part, if you look at both of them, have got significant connections to limbic system, especially the anterior part is connected to the limbic pathway. And the, and the medial part has got a lot of connections to the prefrontal cortex. Dysfunction in this part can produce changes in cognition and behavior. And then the dorsal part of the thalamus and has, has got, uh, in, in addition to the pulvinar, it's called the pulvinar of the thalamus, you also got the lateral geniculate body and the medial geniculate body. The lateral geniculate body, as you know, has got connections with the vision pathway to the superior colliculus and relays the information to the occipital cortex whereas the medial geniculate pathway is mainly with the auditory uh, pathway and it relays information to the Heschel's guide, so the auditory cortex. So this is the main classification of the morphological, uh, of the, the, the anatomical as well as the morphological classification. It's very important to know the morphological classification because that's how the dysfunction of the thalamus can be described um, when we look at it. So just to, just to recap again, the anterior part connections with the limbic system and the, the medial part mainly connection to the prefrontal cortex and the lateral part has got connections and the posterior part of the lateral part is mainly the semitosensory cortex and the and the ventral anterior and the ventral lateral has got connections of motor structures like the basal ganglia and the cerebellum and the dorsal part is called the lateral geniculate body and the middle geniculate body and also the pulmonar of the thalamus now it's also important to look at the blood supply in this context because um, if you know the morphology and the anatomy, we can actually kind of classify the blood supply also in a similar pattern. Now, if you, if you ask me which is the one blood vessel which supplies the thalamus, I would say it's the posterior cerebral artery. That's the main artery which supplies most of the thalami. And um, if you look at the posterior cerebral artery, once it arises from the tip of the basilar artery, it is joined by the posterior communicating artery. So you can divide that part of the proximal, the, the posterior cerebral artery into a pre-communal part. That is a part before the, the posterior communicating artery joins and there is a post-communal part. In the pre-communal part of the posterior cerebral artery, it comes off the paramedian thalamic arteries. Otherwise you can call it as a thalamus of thalamic arteries. And these are the arteries which supply mainly the medial part of the thalamus. And um, from the post-communal part, you get the main, the main branches which come off are called the thalamogeniculate arteries. And there are a few of these branches which arise from the posterior cerebral artery, and they supply the lateral part. 
and then the the anterior part of the thalamus or you can see it's supplied by the polar the polar artery otherwise called the the tuberothalamic artery and this is actually a branch of the posterior communicating artery and then finally the dorsal the dorsal part the posterior most part of the thalamus is supplied by the posterior choroidal arteries so if you look at it if you look at the functional classification it's easy to follow the the blood supply as well to again to recap the medial part is from the paramedian artery coming off from the precommunal part of the the posterior cerebral artery the anterior part is from the polar artery which is a branch of the posterior communicating artery and the lateral part of the thalamus is supplied by the thalamogeniculate arteries which arise from the postcommunal part of the posterior cerebral artery and finally the dorsal part is supplied by the posterior choroidal artery so if we keep this in mind um, it might be easy to follow the vascular syndromes of thalamus so the next thing we're going to do is talk about some cases and the presentation. So the first case we have is a 62-year-old right-handed female um, who's presented with sudden onset right-sided sensory disturbance. She has a history of hypertension and high cholesterol. She reports that she was cooking when it suddenly just came over her. Examination revealed normal tone and power. The reflexes were normal with a flexed left plantar and equivocal right plantar response. Her sensation to pin and temperature was reduced on the right side of her body, including her limbs and her face. The vibration sensation was also impaired on the right. Two weeks after her initial presentation, she's reviewed in clinic and is complaining of pain and increased sensitivity on the right side of her body. This is noticeable with even only minor stimuli. Okay, so let's let's look at this case in, 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 in the context um, in the vascular. She is a 62-year-old lady who has got some vascular risk factors hypertension hypercholesterolemia and if you look at the manifestation here it's it's predominantly it's a sensory syndrome there's no mention of motor weakness here the muscle the muscle power seems to be normal the tone seems to be normal and uh, and there is no other obvious focal neurological deficit so it seems like it's a predominantly or purely sensory manifestation here there's a mention of an equivocal right plantar which we will keep it aside for the time being this is predominantly a sensory manifestation and it's an abrupt onset, so it's a vascular syndrome most likely. So this is a, it's it's one of those pure sensory stroke syndromes. And localization, when you talk about somebody who comes with an isolated sensory stroke syndrome, the first thing you think about is thalamic. Of course, you have to think about other localizations if possible. Could it be a cortical stroke? Very unlikely because if you look at the, the vascular supply of the cortex, if you look at the middle cerebral artery territory, usually you find combinations of motor and sensory weakness. The same goes for brainstem strokes as well. You know, if you look at lateral medullary syndrome and other brainstem syndromes, there's usually a combination of other motor manifestations or other incoordination and other features, cranial nuclei manifestations which come into that. And even subcortical strokes, if you look at that, if usually there's a combination of either ataxia or weakness or sensory deficits. So this is most likely fitting in with a, a pure sensory stroke syndrome due to a thalamic lacunar infarct which would go in with the history of this patient with the, with the risk factors. So this is a well-described clinical syndrome and it's one of the ones which is easily recognized by most people. Somebody who has got a hemisensory syndrome of abrupt onset, almost always it becomes a thalamic diagnosis, a thalamic localization. This is usually due to a lacunar um, mechanism. Uh, it's a small vessel disease. And the reason for that is mainly because it is such a small lesion, and that is why it remains as a pure sensory stroke. And it can also be sometimes very rarely can be embolic, and very rarely very small thalamic bleed 
which will be extremely unlikely, but that can also happen sometimes. So any focal process can produce that, and the localization, if you look, if you remember the morphological, it's usually in the in the ventral posterior nucleus of the thalamus, it's in the lateral thalamic nucleus. It's usually a lateral thalamic infarct. Now, if you look at the symptom in this patient and, and, and in the in these syndromes, you know. Um, uh, it can be the distribution of the symptom can be variable. Sometimes it may be the face, the limb, the, both the upper and the lower limbs on one side, and the trunk may also be affected. So it can be a complete hemisensory involvement on one side, including the trunk. But it, but it's quite variable. And sometimes some people may have it predominantly in the face. Some it can be patchy, and sometimes some people may have it in the upper limbs and the lower limbs. His face may be re relatively preserved. So it's quite variable. And one of the ways sometimes it can manifest is um, is called as a caro oral distribution that means some people complain of tingling around the angle of the mouth and in the fingertips so if you notice this kind of presentation it could be thalamic sometimes okay that's the caro oral distribution can happen with um, these sort of thalamic stroke syndromes all sorts of sensory modalities can be affected but usually the deep sensations are usually more affected the vibration joint position uh, and sometimes you may get a you may get a dissociated sensory pattern where the vibration joint position can be affected much more, and the pain and temperature can be relatively spared. Uh, but all sensations can be affected. It is it's a very variable pattern. The important clue is it is purely sensory, and um, uh, it is different from what you expect from a cortical stroke or a subcortical stroke or a brainstem stroke. If you look at the what happens afterwards in this patient, uh, this patient after two weeks, the patient goes on to develop kind of unusual increased sensitivity on the right side of the body. This is also a well-described problem after thalamic strokes and uh, this, this is a post-thalamic pain syndrome. This can happen in a significant proportion of these patients. As they recover from the initial hemisensory impairment, they start developing these positive sensory symptoms. And this is postulated to be a central mechanism. And the original name for this was a Dijerian Rossi syndrome. Well, now this is classified under the post-stroke central pain syndromes. Actually, this is, this is seen much more in lateral medullary strokes. People who have got a Wallenberg syndrome or a lateral medullary stroke, they got the same sort of post-stroke pain syndrome. Many people who describe that. So it's not specific to thalamus. It can happen in any other central mechanism. Basically, it's a central post-stroke central pain mechanism which is happening. And these patients can have variable intensity of symptoms. Some may be having milder symptoms, but some people can have severe pain, all sorts of altered um, positive sensory phenomena like burning, paresthesias, so much so that it can affect the quality of life significantly. And, and they can be delayed sometimes by weeks, sometimes by several months after the original infarct or the original uh, process. The best management for this is mainly by either you use um, drugs like amitriptyline or um, anti-epileptic medications like carbamazepine. Or pregabaline or gabapentine can be useful in this scenario. Okay, thank you. So, so with this case, with a pure sensory um, stroke syndrome, we can easily localize that to the thalamus, and we're thinking about the lateral part of the thalamus. That's correct. Yes, I think before we proceed to the next case, we should try to expand from that. Uh, what are the other manifestations a patient can get because of a stroke in the lateral part of the thalamus? And in this particular case, there is a mention of uh, equivocal right plantar response. Now, does that have any significance? Does it mean these are a pyramidal involvement? Now, sometimes these patients can have, in addition to the sensory, they may have very subtle pyramidal signs. One of the reasons for that is the thalamogeniculate artery, as we mentioned before, which supplies the 
the lateral part of the thalamus sometimes supplies a part of the internal capsule. So you may get a combination of a predominantly sensory syndrome with very mild pyramidal signs. The motor weakness is never more prominent than the sensory in these cases. They may have transient weakness which usually improves. They may have subtle signs like this patient has. So if that is the case, usually it's again it's a sensory predominant syndrome. But sometimes you may come across a patient with a lateral thalamic stroke which has got significant weakness. If that is the case, it, it may almost mimic like an MCA cortical stroke. There's a combination of severe sensory deficit and a severe weakness. That usually happens in the context of a thalamic bleed. Now, if you get a lateral thalamic bleed, because the lateral boundary of the thalamus is the internal capsule, with a bleed usually because of the swelling, it can affect and compress upon the posterior limb of the internal capsule. This is this is more of a thalamocapsular hemorrhage, and that's why the hemorrhage patients can manifest with sensory and motor signs, whereas if it's a lacune, usually it's either isolated sensory or with very mild pyramidal weakness. So that is something which you have to think about if there is a significant weakness along with the sensory manifestation, this could be a capsular involvement because of a bleed causing edema and swelling. This can rarely happen with infarcts in the acute stage, but it's very, very unusual. If you remember the when I talked about the, the, the functional anatomy of the thalamus before, the other part of the, the, the lateral part of the thalamus is the ventral anterior and the ventral lateral, which has got dense connections to the basal ganglia and the cerebellum. So one of the ways, uh, in addition to the hemisensory syndrome, they can manifest with involuntary movements because of the disruption of the connections to the basal ganglia. There have been various cases described where patients get a dystonic posturing in the hand. On the contralateral side or the same side of the as the hemisensory involvement. Sometimes you may have um, choreathetosis at the beginning of the stroke. Some patients may have a, a tremor and it can be a, a something like what is described with the red nucleus tremor with, uh, with uh, a rest intention and action component. Sometimes you may have frank cerebellar signs because of the interruption of the efferent fibers to the cerebellum and it forms a part of the circuit the, which is the dentator rupratalamic pathway are actually efferent fibers from the cerebellum. So a disruption of that can manifest just like a cerebellar lesion. So these patients may have signs of incoordination, intention tremor, dystidocal kinesis. So all these could be additional manifestations because of thalamic uh, involvement of the, of the lateral nucleus of the thalamus. So to sum it up, either if it is purely a lacunar pathology, it's most likely a hemisensory in the lateral thalamus. But if it is additional involvement, if it is due to a bleed, some other process affecting the other nuclei, it can, and even with an infarct sometimes in the ventral anterior, the ventral lateral nucleus, in addition to the sensory, you may have other motor manifestations, which could be involuntary movements, a frank cerebellar signs from that sign. That is something to be kept in mind. Okay, thank you. Um, so our next case is a 70-year-old right-handed man who's presented with sudden onset left-sided sensory loss and marked incoordination on the left side. And he's clearly got some dystidogokinesis on the left and he's got a left-sided hemianopia. Again, if you, this, is an inter this, is, this is not an uncommon scenario which you find. You know, if you, um, this is a pattern which needs to be recognised and um, if you look at the case, again, there's a sudden onset. It means that this is a vascular syndrome and he's got a left-sided sensory impairment. In the context of what we are thinking, we think, okay, if we, if we think there is a right thalamic lesion and, and there is significant incoordination on the left side, as I, as I was just mentioning in the, in the previous case, 
when you get a hemisensory impairment with significant incoordination like a cerebellar syndrome, you should think about thalamic lesion on the, on the opposite side because the incoordination is because of the interruption of the dentator rubrothalamic pathway. The hemisensory loss is because of the thalamic involvement in the, in the ventral posterolateral nucleus. Yeah, so the hemianopia, of course, you think about occipital cortex. Or can you explain it just by a thalamic lesion? As we mentioned before, the posterior most part of the thalamus is called the lateral geniculate body. It relays the information to the occipital cortex. Now, with lateral geniculate body lesions, usually you may get um, various sorts of visual problems. Usually described as quadrantinopia, sectoral field defects, um, rather than a dense hemianopia. It's, it's, it's more likely that this patient has got a combination of an occipital infarct along with a thalamic infarct. Now, this is not uncommon because if you look at the vascular anatomy, the vascular supply of the thalamus, as I mentioned, the posterior cerebral artery is a main is, is main source of blood supply to the thalamus. And it supplies the thalamus and then the posterior cerebral artery continues on its course to supply the medial part of the temporal lobe and then the occipital lobe. So it's a common scenario where a blood clot, an embolus, which comes and goes and can occlude the posterior cerebral artery and can further travel along the posterior cerebral artery to cause infarcts in the temporal lobe and the occipital lobe. So this full syndrome, which is usually due to a proximal posterior cerebral artery territory involvement, can get a combination of thalamic infarcts and an occipital infarct with or without a temporal lobe infarct. And the whole manifestation of that will be a, a contralateral hemianopia because of the occipital lobe involvement. You get a contralateral hemisensory involvement because of the thalamic lesion. You may get memory impairment in these patients, especially if there is dominant temporal lobe involved. And um, you may have other manifestation like an incoordination because of the dentator rubrothalamic pathway involvement. So this pattern is important to recognize. If you get a combination of a hemisensory involvement with a hemianopia on that side, always think about thalamus. There's not many other sites, not many other vascular syndromes. Uh, you may think that, okay, it can happen in a cortical stroke, for example, Usually, to get a dense hemianopia uh, along with um, uh, hemisensory involvement is, is less common in a cortical stroke. Usually, you may get a quadrantinopia in these patients, uh, especially if you get an associated incoordination. This, this would fit in with a thalamic stroke, and that's a posterior cerebral artery syndrome. So um, our third case is um, a 59-year-old male with a history of hypertension and diabetes who's brought into the emergency department after being found unconscious by his wife. He went to bed well, but she couldn't rouse him in the morning. In the emergency department, he was unrousable. There was no recent history of drug and alcohol use. His saturations, blood pressure and pulse were unremarkable other than an elevated blood pressure of 185 over 70. His GCS... Um, was 6, E1, V1, M4. His blood glucose was 6, and there were no obvious electrolyte disturbances. Neurological examination was limited. Pupils were small but reactive bilaterally. There was no clear facial weakness and tone appeared normal. Reflexes were normal and planters were equivocal bilaterally. He was intubated due to concerns over his airway. The following day he was extubated but remained somnolent. He was rousing for only short periods with noxious stimuli. Okay, so this is something which you might come across. I may call it the emergency to see this patient. Um, now, of course, when you, see, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you examine the patient, when you hear the story, you have to think very broadly. Um, 
this patient who seems to have a significant unconsciousness without any any definite focal neurological signs like in the swarm of there's no kind of focal or unilateral decerebrate rigidity or anything like that which is described here. The other important points to note is there is an abrupt onset. Okay, so it could be vascular, okay, but we have to think very broadly here. Our pupils are small but reactive, so there is no anisocoria here. And the reflex, there's no reflex asymmetry from what we can make out. And the plantars are equivocal, so there's no definite upgoing plantars. And the patient is um, has improved from the next in the following day in 24 hours, but still remains very somnolent. With this, of course, we have to start thinking about this is is this is this could be metabolic, is it toxic, or it could be brainstem. But again, uh, if you look at the brainstem localization, there are no other signs to clearly say that this is a brainstem localization. There's no there's no obvious abnormalized signs, no long track signs. And um, thinking about the abrupt onset, if you think about vascular, this is a scenario where you have to think about thalamic infarct. And this is important because uh, in the initial CT scan, this, this can be completely missed. So if a patient comes in acutely who is completely unresponsive or very hypersomnolent without any major lateralizing features, um, even if the CT scan, if initial CT scan is normal, you have to think in the back of the mind or oh, this could be one of the possibilities could be a thalamic infarct because there are no obvious brainstem infarct. And um, to have a stroke syndrome with unconsciousness is very unlikely for a cortical localization. You don't usually find people with, un with, with impaired awareness unless it's a big bleed, of course. You get focal neurological signs. So this is one scenario where you, are, you, you would seriously think about a thalamic infarct, especially bilateral thalamic infarcts, and you have to be aware of this syndrome of um, bilateral paramedian thalamic infarcts. Uh, this this is described as the infarcts in the region of the artery of Percheron. So, if you recollect what we told about the the blood supply of the thalamus, we told the medial part of the thalamus is supplied by the paramedian arteries. Now, in a significant proportion of people. Um, the both the thalamus is supplied from a one single trunk, and the artery and goes and supplies a medial part of both the thalamus arising from a common trunk, and this is called as the artery of Percheron. So, if you get an an infarct in the region of the artery of Percheron, you will end up getting bilateral paramedian thalamic infarcts, and the presentation will be exactly like what it described here: very abrupt onset of loss of consciousness of varying degrees, ranging from hypersomnolence to extreme coma and as time goes on patients can recover to some extent but they remain hypersomnolent for a long time they may or may not have some focal neurology but sometimes they may not have any significant focal deficits to go by um, these patients um, you know as, as they recover from this syndrome uh, they will gradually come out of the hypersomnolence then you'll find that they have got significant cognitive deficits as I told you the medial thalamus has got rich connections with the prefrontal lobe. So as they recover from that, they may behave like a patient who has got a bilateral frontal lobe syndrome with an akinetic mute rebulic state. And one of the clues for this to look for is as they recover, to look for uh, vertical upgaze paresis. So that's an important component of this. The, the vertical upgaze paresis need not happen because of involvement of the midbrain directly. Can happen because there are connections from the paramedian nucleus of thalamus to the upgaze centers in the junction between the 
uh, the thalamus and the midbrain. So the most important nucleus is the rostral interstitial nucleus of MLF and there are fibers coming connections from the thalamus to that so there can be disruption of that causing bilateral upgaze paresis. So if you find a patient who is hypersomnolent from a abrupt onset and upgaze paresis uh, may or may not have uh, significant focal neurology or behaving like a frontal lobe state then a kinetic ebulic state think about um, this particular bilateral paramedian thalamic infarcts. And, and it's mentioned about the pupils in this case. The pupils are small but reactive bilaterally and this is classical of diencephalic pupils. So it's essentially there is sympathetic dysfunction and these pupils are smaller but they are not they're not pinpoint pupils as described with pontine hemorrhage. Uh, they're slightly bigger than that but they're definitely they're they meiosis in both the sides. Uh, and then of course um, uh, and as these patients evolve and become more and more conscious, they may have various sorts of cognitive sequelae as part of that. Now, um, this manifestation is most pronounced when there is bilateral thalamic infarcts, but there are lots of descriptions of unilateral paramedian infarcts where patients may present initially with a transient loss of awareness or impairment of consciousness, which is usually much lessened in severity than the bilateral bilateral infarcts and usually more transient. So the description will be patient has got some hypersomnolence and they recover much quickly from that. And as they evolve, as I told you, they may have various cognitive sequelae. Now, sometimes a, a paramedian infarct can be very small. And if it is really a small paramedian infarct, there's no loss of awareness. The patient can present with just cognitive manifestations. So, and it's gonna happen with both hemorrhage as well as um, with infarcts. If it is strategically located just in the, in the paramed in, in the medial thalamus, and not causing uh, a lot of um, compression to the midbrain, or not disrupting many of causing a lot of disconnection, it can behave just like a, a frontal lobe syndrome because of it affects the fibers of the frontal lobe. In a similar way, and if you look at it, in the medial and the anterior thalamic part of the thalamus. They almost behave in that way. Both of them have got rich connections to the limbic system and the frontal pathway. So a pure anterior thalamic infarct, and if you remember the anatomy, the anterior part of the thalamus is supplied by the polar artery. So polar artery infarcts, if it is strategically located in the anterior part of the thalamus, can also behave just with cognitive problems. Sometimes a pure amnestic syndrome has been described, where people have got just memory impairment. And there are various descriptions of this, like thalamic dementia, and various sorts of frontal lobe dysfunction. If you do uh, frontal lobe functions, they are usually impaired in these patients. And they may not have the classical thalamic sensory involvement or motor weakness. So it can be purely cognitive behavioral when it's a strategic infarct in the in the medial or the anterior part of the thalamus. They've got significant executive problem. They've got problems in organizing things. Um, they've got temporal disorientation, very poor category fluency. They behave like in a kinetic mutabulic state. So there is various grades of that. And another thing which has been described is many of these patients may have what is called as mimic facial palsy or emotional facial palsy. When you voluntarily smile, there's no facial palsy. But when you spontaneously, you know, uh, when the, the patient spontaneously laughs, you can see that there is an obvious uh, uh, weakness in the face. And that is called as emotional facial paresis. The reason for that is the, the the normal pathway for the volitional movement of the face is different from the emotional pathway. That's why people who have got thalamic infarcts can get emotional facial paresis as opposed to the normal you know, volitional facial paresis that we commonly see. 
what is the other possibility in this patient you know, apart from a, somebody coming with unconsciousness in a thalamic environment uh, apart from the artery of Percheron, you have to think about thalamic bleed so a paramedian thalamic bleed is very commonly it can extend down caudally to the midbrain and that's that's that is that is more often that happens with these sort of bleeds if you look at uh, patients who are present with paramedian medial thalamic bleeds around three-fourths of them will have significant expansion and compression and caudal extension to the midbrain whereas purely strategically located bleeds in the medial nucleus is much less common than the ones which extend down and many of these bleeds they extend into the third ventricle and produce hydrocephalus so this is a very very bad condition if that happens we all must have seen patients coming in with a thalamic bleed extending down to the midbrain who progresses very fast deteriorates very quickly and uh, progressive progressive coma develops and these patients develop contralateral decerebration and uh, and they sometimes they, they rapidly deteriorate and die and that is uh, a, a, a significant morbidity which can happen to these patients but this patient the fact that he improved after 24 hours then goes in with a, a, a paramedian thalamic infarct than a bleed which is extending into the into the uh, midbrain. Our next case is an 85-year-old lady who's presented with sudden onset right-sided weakness and impaired speech. So she's got a non-fluent speech with semantic paraphasias and occasional word-finding difficulty. But word repetition and her comprehension appears to be normal. And the following day, her weakness has significantly improved. Yeah, so this is... Um... This is not something which you would normally think of as a thalamic lesion if you hear the story, isn't it? So if you, if you see a patient like this, it's got a right-sided weakness and impaired speech and language problem, it looks like she, the patient has got an aphasia of some sort. The first thing you'll be thinking, of course, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a dominant cortical problem, isn't it? So you might think, that it's, is it an MCS, is it an MCA cortical stroke? Uh, but this this pattern can happen with thalamic strokes as well. That's what um, you have to be aware of. And, and if you look at the if you look at the pattern of the aphasia here, uh, you can see that the patient has got non-fluent aphasia. There is problems with um, word finding. There is uh, paraphasias, but uh, the comprehension is relatively preserved. The repetition is impaired, whereas in Ivanovich's aphasia, as you know, that the repetition is affected, and that is. That's a very common finding. So this is what you would call as a transcortical sensory aphasia. Now these sort of this is this is an example for what you would call as a subcortical aphasia. When we are taught about aphasias, we know that the first thing which we are taught in neurology is that or if if the patient has got aphasia, there is a cortical localization. Uh, now we know that you know subcortical dysfunction can produce aphasias, and this is this case actually exemplifies that cause. Thalamic aphasias are well known, and uh, the difference and they can behave like either transcortical motor or transcortical sensory aphasias depending upon where exactly in which part of the thalamus it is affected the transcortical motor aphasias behave just like Broca's aphasia except that the repetition is preserved transcortical sensory aphasias behave just like Wernicke's aphasia except that the repetition is preserved okay and this is not specific to thalamic stroke and this can happen even with cortical strokes when you find that with a thalamic stroke, you have to be aware that yes, this can be explained just by a thalamic aphasia. And why does it happen? It's because of the disconnection of the thalamus with the with the language cortex. A problem in the thalamus can behave just like a cortical lesion 
because of a disconnection syndrome. Okay, and that is why it's important to know about that. People describe it by various terms. One of the terms used is the concept of diaschesis. Diaschesis is you get a problem in one part of a network in the brain, but the effect is quite remotely felt somewhere. So the, here is a problem in the thalamus, which is not the language center, but because it is disconnection of the thalamus, the networks with the language center, it is behaving like a, an aphasia. And usually thalamic aphasias, they improve faster than the usual cortical aphasias. So the prognosis is more favorable usually. And of course, if this patient, if, if the patient has got the other features of hemisensory, along with the aphasia, it's more easier to diagnose clinically, but sometimes otherwise it can be difficult to differentiate from a cortical lesion many times. Are patients who have these thalamic aphasias, is it more likely to be a dominant hemisphere lesion? Yeah. Okay, so and now in this patient, now when we're talking about disconnection syndrome, we talked about the language aspect. Now it's important to remember that disconnection can this disconnection syndrome can produce any sort of cortical symptoms. Now this thalamic aphasia has usually happened in the in the left in the left thalamus because it produces disconnection to the dominant language hemisphere. Um, the same way, if we have got non-dominant or right-sided thalamic lesions, you may get a hemineglect syndrome, just like you get. Um, hemineglect syndrome with a non-dominant uh, parietal or frontal cortical problem. So it's again a disconnection syndrome causing that. And, and there are cases described with thalamic lesions producing aphasia, agnosias, apraxias, um, neglect syndrome. So all these cortical syndromes can be mimicked by a thalamic lesion by this mechanism of disconnection depending upon which side and which part of the thalamus is involved. Now, in this patient, in addition to that, the patient also has got some right-sided weakness. And as we mentioned before, patients who have got pure thalamic lesions to produce weakness, frank hemiparesis is uncommon. Usually, it happens in the context of thalamocapsular hemorrhage when there is extension into the internal capsule on the lateral side. Sometimes, a thalamic infarct in the acute stage can produce because the swelling can again affect the posterior limb of the internal capsule. But usually it's not severe weakness and it tends to improve with time. Uh, this could be the possible mechanisms in this patient. And if you think about what are the other ways in which a patient who got a thalamic stroke can have weakness, the, the, the other explanation is that if there is involvement of the midbrain. Now, the two ways midbrain can be affected. One is, as I already mentioned, if you've got a, a medial thalamic hemorrhage extending down to the midbrain, compressing the midbrain, you can get a contralateral weakness because of the crust cerebra is involved. And these patients are usually progressively deteriorate and they are usually they are quite unconscious. The other situation is, you know, if you if you recall the, uh, the blood supply of the thalamus, the medial portion of the thalamus, uh, I talked about the, the paramedian artery. Now many a times the paramedian artery also has got blood supply going to the to the upper part of the midbrain. And they actually come from a common arterial pedicles. So it's not uncommon for people with paramedian infarcts to have simultaneous midbrain infarcts as well. In fact, many of the syndromes of arteriopersonal infarcts, as I've told before, they've got simultaneous infarcts in the midbrain as well. So if you've got a thalamic median infarct along with a midbrain infarct, that could be an explanation for somebody who's got frank weakness on one side if there is, if it is not a big bleed with compression. But more commonly, it's, if it is a hemorrhage, the thalamocapsular hemorrhage in the lateral part of the thalamus, compressing onto the internal capsule can produce a picture which is seen in this patient along with uh, various other disconnection syndromes. Infarcts can do that rarely as well, especially if there is swelling. 
And our final case is so a 62-year-old man presented with a few days' history of headache and memory disturbance. So he has impaired episodic and working memory, he's got impaired v verbal fluency, and he's confabulating. And then over a week period, his symptoms progressed quite dramatically. And his CT and MRI scanning has shown bilateral thalamic swelling and subsequent angiographic imaging demonstrates a venous sinus thrombosis in the dural AV fistula. So, do you recognise this case, Dr. Chemin? Yes, I, yes I, I distinctly remember one of the patients which I have seen with a similar kind of presentation. You know, now, this is, um, this many times this is a radiological diagnosis, and it's a very striking radiological picture which you'll never forget once you've seen this once. And, and the characteristic feature is the, is a bilateral is a congestion and the swelling of the thalami on both sides. And sometimes you may get associated swelling in the basal ganglia as well. Now, the difference when you look at it from a thalamic infarct or arterial percheron, sometimes it may be confused with that because both have got bilateral thalamic uh, involvement. Clinically, the difference is that the arterial percheron, arterial infarcts, they are very abrupt in onset, whereas the venous sinus, the deep, the deep cerebral venous sinus thrombosis presentation is more gradual. They usually present with non-specific confusion, gradually worsening. They may have focal symptoms, but usually it's more of cognitive uh, symptoms to start off with, which gradually progress to uh, changes in alertness. And some patients can have significant impairment in awareness and alertness as well. And, and another thing to look for is um, history of headache. So many of these patients, uh, majority of these patients will have headache which is not a feature of um, arterial personal infarcts or bilateral th thalamic infarcts. So the gradual progression, the non the, some of the symptoms can be very non-specific, you know, like cognitive, altered behavior, confusion, uh, and progressive. And, and with that, you get the classical, the, the CT and the MRA picture with bilateral thalamic swelling. With or without basal ganglia involvement will tell you that uh, that this is a, a deep cerebral venous system problem. And um, you can confirm that by doing an MR angiogram or a, um, an MR venogram or a CT venogram where you can actually see the deep cerebral venous system and you can see that there is occlusion of that. And uh, usually the thalami, if you look at the venous drainage of the thalami, they are drained by the thalamostriate veins. From there it goes on to the, the, deep, the internal cerebral vein and from there it goes to the great vein of gallon and then it goes to the straight sinus and then to the, the transverse sinus. So we can see that this system is occluded on the angiogram and that will prove to the diagnosis. In addition to that characteristic swelling, which is more of a vasogenic edema rather than a ceratoxic edema. And, 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 and that will give you the diagnosis. And these patients also may become hyposomnolent. They may have mood changes, behavioral changes. They may have focal deficits, headache, and sometimes this can be this radiological picture can be confused with um, viral encephalitis, especially mm. conditions like Japanese encephalitis. And it's it's a radiological differential diagnosis, especially in, in places where there is these this sort of encephalitis are common. Arboviral encephalitis can cause that. Usually those patients are much more sicker, they're febrile, they got um, other other manifestations of meningoencephalitis, seizures, etc. And the presence of uh, the angiographic abnormality will also give you the clue to the diagnosis. The symptom presentation can be very non-specific sometimes. The, the case which I saw was somebody who was um, appeared as confused, having bizarre behavior. 
and then he gradually deteriorated but he never became unresponsive he was still conscious but he had confusion he had altered thinking he had an altered affect and mood and then he had this profound swelling in, on on the mri scan and sometimes even on a non contrast ct scan just like you see a superior cytokine sinus thrombosis hyperdense and you know it's called as a dense delta sign in the same way if you look at a non contrast sign sometimes you can see that in the region of the deep cerebral venous system so even in a non contrast ct sometimes you make a diagnosis and you can always corroborate that with your angiogram yeah it's an uncommon but a very interesting presentation which you have to always keep in the back of your mind and the radiological picture is the most important thing there and it's very important because it's treatable exactly so anticoagulant sometimes this could be secondary to other vascular malformations causing alteration in the hemodynamics which can predispose to the the thrombosis and so sometimes you may need to treat the vascular malformation as a part of that but many a times it can be just like you get in the superior cytokine sinus or the other cortical venous sinus thrombosis this can be a prothrombotic state dehydration things like that can provoke this so early and prompt anticoagulation is the most important thing here okay fantastic thank you so much for your time today do you have any kind of final points that you'd like to yeah discuss? i thought uh, i thought it would be interesting to summarize because uh, i know it's been it's it's a very complicated topic and it's very difficult to kind of get a grasp on especially if you're hearing for the first time so i thought i will make a uh, summarize a few important take home points here the first one which i thought is that when you talk about thalamus you have to think beyond sensory you have to think about as i mentioned the thalamus has got rich connections to the motor system to the limbic system frontal cortex visual hearing pathways so it can produce various manifestations beyond the sensory which could be motor which could be changes in alertness behavior memory vision and hearing all these you have to keep in the back of the mind number 2 is that you know the thalamus has got reciprocal connections with the cortex extensively so you have to remember about thalamic disconnection syndrome so a thalamic lesion can behave just like a cortical lesion also like a cerebellar lesion for example we told about you know there's a disconnection of the dentator rubrum thalamic pathway it can behave just like a cerebellar syndrome so it can behave like a frontal lobe syndrome it can behave like in a phasia neglect syndrome so any sort of cortical syndrome can be mimicked by a thalamus that is the second thing which you have to keep in mind and uh, the third thing is that even though we talked about anatomical landmarks you remember that these anatomical landmarks are not always obeyed in the thalamic lesion especially with hemorrhages okay so um, you may you may get the all a combination of cognitive alertness problems sensory problems depending upon how extensive is the involvement and and the fourth point is the knowledge of the functional and the classification of thalamus is the most important when you study thalamus as far as i'm concerned so you have to always remember that four main divisions the anterior the medial the lateral and the posterior the anterior think about as mainly connection to the limbic system you get behavioral problems and memory problems the medial part you think about connections to the prefrontal cortex may behave like a frontal lobe syndrome again behavioral problems memory and all that and the lateral thalamus think about sensory and think about plus minus as i told you about motor manifestations like a cerebellar syndrome in coordination and um, uh, various sorts of involuntary movements and the posterior part we did not talk much about the posterior part of the thalamus because it, it's they are relatively rare but again the lactogenically body in fox and lesions can produce visual problems and things like that sometimes transient diplopia and things like that and um, 
The other point is that the clinical manifestations of uh, will depend upon the involvement of the contiguous structures. So it's important to know the boundary of the thalamus. So the lateral part, there is the internal capsule. So if anything which can press onto the internal capsule, like a thalamic capsular hemorrhage, can produce significant weakness. And caudally, there is a midbrain. And as I told you, the medial thalamic hemorrhage, very common to extend down to the midbrain and can produce midbrain effects like a dilated pupil and a contralateral weakness and, and, and impaired awareness and abgasparesis, again, because of midbrain involvement. And uh, the again, uh, the, the medial um, thalamic hemorrhage is very common to extend to the third ventricle and produce obstructive hydrocephalus. And sometimes these patients might need um, an extraventricular drainage for that. So it's important to know the, the neighboring structures and the effects of in, involvement of these contiguous structures. Now, the other point is that whenever you find a patient with an unexplained loss of consciousness or hypersomnolence of abrupt onset, without without significant focal neurology, always keep a bilateral thalamic paramedian infarcts in the back of the mind. Even if the CT scan is normal, you, you, you want to go back and repeat the CT scan. And always think about thalamic infarct in the back of the mind. But many a time these patients are, are presented quite delayed. And then finally, it's you know it's, it's important to recognize patterns. You know, whenever you study neurology, it's a, it's a recognition of patterns. In the midst of all the chaos of the thalamic syndromes, it's important to know some recognizable patterns by which you might think thalamus. And number one is a pure hemisensory. That's a thalamic lacunar syndrome. That is something which all of us will pick up, I'm sure. And number two is the pattern of hemiataxia and hypesthesia, which I've described like a combination of hemisensory with a cerebellar syndrome on the same side, okay? And that is because of a combination of the ventroposterior lateral nucleus along with the dentator rucrothalamic pathways and involved. So whenever you find a patient with a hemiataxia and hypoesthesia on one side, think about thalamus. Then a hemisensory with hemianopia, which I described, is usually because the same blood supply in the posterior cerebral artery territory. So whenever you find a patient with hemisensory involvement on one side, with a hemianopia on that side, think about a posterior cerebral artery, proximal posterior cerebral artery infarct. And then we already talked about impaired consciousness with small pupils and abgasparesis, which could be bilateral paramedian infarcts like arterial percheron. And then of course, a pure amnestic syndrome. Remember, a pure amnestic syndrome can sometimes be because of a very strategically located anterior thalamic or a medial thalamic infarct. The patient may have nothing but just amnesia. So these are some of the patterns which you have to think about. And of course, there is a transcortical aphasia which we described about. So these are some of the syndromes you think about when you think about thalamus. I hope uh, you'll find it useful. It's, 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 it's very complicated and we have tried to make some sense out of it. <laughs> I hope you'll find it useful. I think everyone will find it useful. Thank you so much, Dr. Chairman. And Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.